Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we've got a fabulous cross-generational conversation between two women separated by a good number of years, but united by a punk spirit. Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's and Sadie Dupuis of Speedy Ortiz and Sad 13. Now, it's no overstatement to say that Kathy Valentine has a massive place in music history as part of the Go-Go's, who burst from the L.A. punk scene of the late 70s and into the musical mainstream in the early 80s. They were the first and still only all-woman band who wrote and performed their own songs to top the Billboard charts. And their debut album, Beauty and the Beat, from 1981, remains a classic 40 years later. It's been an amazing career for Valentine, some of which she recalls in this great memoir she released last year called All I Ever Wanted. If you're more of a viewer than a reader, there's also a great Go-Go's documentary on Showtime that covers the band's career. And this year, finally, after being eligible for 15 years... The Go-Go's have been voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They'll be inducted next month alongside Foo Fighters, Todd Rundgren, Jay-Z, Tina Turner, and Carole King. Great company. These days, Valentine lives in Austin, makes her own music when she's not writing or doing charitable work, and occasionally gigs with the Go-Go's, who have been reunited again since about 2019. Sadie Dupuis lived in Austin very briefly, the two get into that, not long before she started the band that would launch her career, Speedy Ortiz, in Massachusetts. With Speedy, she's released three albums. The latest is 2018's Twerp Verse. And as Sad 13, she's released another two, including last year's fully vibing Haunted Painting. She's also released a book of poems called Mouthguard. And perhaps most importantly, she's been dissecting every episode of the Gossip Girl reboot exclusively for the TalkHouse newsletter. Yes, you should subscribe. Valentine and Dupuis have a great conversation about everything from Sadie's punk rock parents and her dad's odd connection to the rock hall to the Greenbrier Alternative School, to the soundtrack that Valentine created to go along with her book that Sadie Dupuis is really, really into. Enjoy the chat. I'm going to start off right with your circumstances. I wanted to talk to you about Austin anyway, because I lived there for like one second. It's my favorite city. And I can't believe the power and weather drama you've been experiencing this year. I've been organizing with this union of musicians and allied workers over the pandemic. That's a bunch of kind of decentralized all over the the country and some in the UK. uh, Musicians working on basically advocacy for music workers. And there's one person who's a booking agent in Austin and she is just constantly bringing stuff to us that's like racial equity for musicians in Austin, nonprofits for healthcare for musicians in Austin, or mental health care. It seems like there's so many great organizations and small businesses. And I, I was going to move back last year. And then in the pandemic, I did not. And I, I kind of, when I, all my friends lost power for weeks, I was just a little bit glad to be in Philly, but very sad for them dealing with a snow nightmare. Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing how Austin pretty much threw the creative community, not so much through the city of Austin, I don't think, but the the organizations that are in place. In fact, my next She Factory was going to be for an organization called Home, which uh, provides homes to elderly musicians that can't get out and gig as much. Amazing. And uh, it pays their rent and their bills. Yeah, it's, it's one of the cool things, how we really do support 
in ways that I don't know happen in other cities. And I think, I mean, Austin obviously has such an incredible long legacy of cool music clubs and, you know, birthing genres and scenes. But I think sometimes when a cool city is so overtaken by tech, the arts communities have to come together a lot harder to provide resources like this. Uh, Fun Austin, what what are your favorite spots? Well, I've been not going out at all. And <laughs> why is that? <laughs> but I, I wasn't going out a lot that much anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've turned into a real homebody and, um, spoiled, you know, I like comfort, you know, and just my day, I've just spent an entire life of gigs and, you know, being at the show and at the gig and, and all that. But having said that, uh, you know, I have a, a local band that I enjoy playing in and I like the old school Austin. I like the Continental Club. I love playing there. They tr- I like to be treated well. I don't need to go in and have a big sold out show and I don't need, you know, lots of money, but I want to be treated well. I was going to ask about Continental. I'm glad that it's on the good list. My first time ever working merch for a band I did merch for Fastball at the Continental Club, and it was really fun. Yeah, I love Fastball, by the way. Tony Scalzo is one of my really good friends. And you know that question I'm sure you've been asked, like, is there a song you wish you'd written? I always say I wish I'd written The Way. It's a great song. I love that song. I love um, Out of My Head their song got like sampled by a big pop star a couple years ago. And I like heard it in a stadium opening for Taylor Swift or something. I know that was awesome. I was really happy for Tony when that happened. Cause, and they're still doing it. They're still making records. They're making one now. In fact, he and I wrote a song, God, years ago. And we did this great demo and it was supposed to be like Disney was going to team up the Go-Go's with an all-female band, and we were going to mentor them and help them write songs and all this stuff. So Tony and I wrote this fabulous song, and then the whole thing turned to shit and didn't happen. And I kind of forgot about the song. And then Tony just called me uh, last week, and he said, "I want really? to do that." Yeah, I, he said, "I want to do that song." And I go, "I go, even though it's kind of basically written for a thirteen-year-old girl to sing." And he goes, "Yeah, I can pull it off." <laughs> So I'm excited. I would love to hear that. That's such a funny coincidence that it was just a week ago. Yeah, I know, really. And so when did you live here? Mm, I was here there in 2008, so really short period of time. I had gone to college in in Boston for, I'd gone for math, and like a year into that, I was like, no, no way can I do this. And I started getting involved in, the school newspaper and doing like music reviews and going to concerts and stuff like that. And I, I'd played in bands since I was a little kid, but at some point I was just like, I can't pretend like I, I'm ever going to finish a like engineering math degree. So I, I dropped out and moved to Austin and uh, was doing some like freelance writing for websites. And I would sit at, at Bolden Creek in the old location and, you know, write my articles there all day long. Cause it was a little cooler than our apartment. And I worked at Waterloo records Oh, wow. And uh, that was my, and then I moved back home in 2009 to go back to school. But you didn't play in a band here ever? I did, but we didn't do too much. I mean, oh. I play. I played in bands since I was 13, but like, I think we played two shows in Austin when I was there, one at Emo's and then like someone's backyard. I was going to say, I, I wish you would move here, but I'm actually thinking of leaving. So I guess. Where are you going to go? I really don't know. I and I don't know if I should, but 
I felt like my daughter's going to college in the fall and congrats. Yeah, I know. And I always thought that since I didn't have a kid till I was 40, almost 44, like two months before I turned 44. So I always thought when she went to college, it would just be like kind of stepping back. That's a lot of life without being a mom. I feel like a big avalanche of nothing is coming at me and a big ball of space. And I'm, and I, I always thought I would feel this freedom and part of the freedom would be like, I can go anywhere. I can go to Paris. I can live in London. I can live in Manhattan. I can do whatever I want, but I'm not feeling the freedom. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And and given that, I'm going to do nothing for a while. It's got to be strange too to, to get prepped for the empty nest thing after the past year of presumably seeing each other more than, you know, the earlier high school years. That's exactly it. And a good insight because I think most parents, they have that year of their 18-year-old high school senior kind of being out in the world and driving and hanging out and being a social animal and partying of that's their thing or whatever. And we didn't have that. We were just like hanging out watching, you know, Breaking Bad or watching series. Now that she's 18, we could watch all these and uh, making music. She started making music and we did a road trip. So we got, we were close to begin with, but yeah, we've spent the last year being really, really close. I'm sticking in Philly for, for the moment, but I love it up there. Philly seems like Philly's an awesome city. I, I mean, the good thing about touring is that you hit all these cities and they're like people to me. Like I can kind of tell right away if I have a connection with a city and I know right away mm. I would want to go back. I, I, I like the, the vibe here. And I don't know if it's the history or the people or what, or there's just something about Philly that has always appealed to me to hang out and stuff. Seattle, Portland, some places that people love, I, I'm not that into. I, I'm not into San Francisco. I'm not into New Orleans. I'm not into San Francisco only because if I'm going to the West Coast, I just like a little bit of nice weather. And it's always colder there than anywhere I came from. Yeah, it's cold. And I feel like it's vulnerable. You know, it's just like the older I get, the more risk averse I get about just like, okay, can I cut out the likelihood of you know, burning up in a fire. <laughs> can, mm. I, can I, can I like mitigate the chances of, you know, being crushed in an earthquake? So there's like certain things like that. And I've gotten in this thing now where I look up cities that are going to be best equipped to dealing with climate change. Sure. Austin actually rates really highly, not only because of the terrain and everything, but the, the community's ability to respond to disaster. Madison, Wisconsin rates really highly. Interesting. I'm thinking a lot in terms of not survivalist, but like really trying to get more proactive about the future. I'm kind of wired to like take care of myself and think five steps ahead. Like what, where do I need to position myself so I'm surviving? My mom is kind of similar. She, and I think you probably some of your New York friends are probably some of my mom's like punk New York friends from before I was born. But she was like, she wrote for Punk Magazine. She was friends with all the New York punk bands in the late 70s, early 80s. And then in like the late 90s, she was like, I got to get out of New York. She moved to Northwest Connecticut. So kind of like where New York, Mass and Connecticut all converge. 
And similar deal. She lives on some land. She's got a well. She would be decently well protected if the climate gets a whole lot hotter, which it most certainly will. Well, I, I'd love to meet your mom then, because it sounds like she's kind of already doing things that I think about. And uh, also to just find out about those connections would be kind of cool. I thought of her last night. I got to watch the eponymous documentary, which is so great. And there's a scene of you playing at the, the Peppermint Lounge. And I think that's where my parents met each other. Oh my so I've God! Been, been meaning to text her, so I need to do that. Oh wow, God, I love that that place and that gig, and it was so exciting. You know, a really exciting time, and that'd be funny if I crossed paths with your mom. I know she's friends with with Clem Burke. Oh, uh, or at least was. She had worked for like a ska label in the UK, and then came back to New York and was sort of less involved directly in the music scene, but was fans and, and friends with. Some of your New York peers, but yeah, she was psyched I was talking to you. Did you not go to school when you were, you didn't come to Austin to go to school at all? It was just a break? No, I had dropped out and wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then when I went back to school, I went to, to women's college. I went to Barnard and back in New York, closer to my family, obviously. I applied to get into UT actually, and they did not take me. Great, oh, really? Great source of sadness. My yeah. Having gone through this whole, I mean, it's been a, a interesting time because my daughter applied to tons and tons of schools, and uh, I didn't go through that. I dropped out of high school in the ninth grade, and yet I just graduated from college the same week that my daughter graduated from high school. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, but these, it's just this weird like synchronicity of her ending up at Syracuse. There's like all these. Oh, cool. Weird, yeah, and it's very weird because number one. Last semester, I took an environmental writing class, and I loved it. It was like, I took it because it was the only one that fulfilled the requirement I needed. And yet, I'm thinking like, oh, God, I just got to write about how many shades of green there are or whatever. And uh, and it was just life-changing. But in that class, I learned all about Robin Wall Kimmerer, who— I don't know anything. Yeah, tell me the she, soup. She is awesome. She's a Native American ancestry and is bringing back the language. She's a, a botanist and she's just fabulous. And she's written a book called, um, well, it came out years ago, called Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's so beautiful and wonderful. And you learn so much while down. you're being enthralled by her writing. So I kind of have a, a crush on her and she's like this auntie type, you know, and so I am at Syracuse touring with Audrey and we kind of take two steps further past the campus. And all of a sudden I see that we're on another campus, S-U-N-Y. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, this is where Robin Wall Kimmerer teaches. Oh my God. And I started like, like getting like this weird starstruck feeling like I'm going to come visit you and maybe I'll get to, to meet her. And then I found out that Mary Carr, who's one of my very favorite memoirists, is on the faculty. Then I found out that George Saunders is on the faculty. I got a Mary Carr book sitting right next to me on my little book stack. So who else my, is on it? George Saunders? Yes, on the faculty. So I'm like, I'm kind of jealous of where she's going to school. Like, like I I'm thinking, because I'm looking at applying for MFA programs and I I thought, cool, that'd be really cool to apply there at Syracuse. But then my daughter, that would be like so weird and, and <laughs> bummer for her. So it's a big school. 
Yeah, I, I think I can hold off. Would it be an MFA in nonfiction? I'm not sure. I got into Texas State University MFA and I was really excited. And then I just started thinking, this is supposed to be a time of freedom. You know, what I really want is to be accountable to write. And I'm just, I when I get up in the morning, I don't know, I think you might be very, it's like, there's a lot I can do creatively, you know, but sitting down and writing novels and short stories isn't what I tend to do unless I'm accountable. If I have to do Mm -hmm. it, I will rock the shit out of that, you know? So the exact same way. Yeah. So give me an assignment, give me a deadline, give me a publishing deal. My memoir would have probably just be still being written for the rest of my life if I didn't have a publishing deal. It's like, it's just, it spoils you rotten to know that your book is actually going to get published, you know? Yeah. I wrote my first book through my MFA program and I am certain I would not have, <laughs> I don't know that that would have happened if I hadn't been is this in mouth, that. Uh, mouth guard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did. I went to UMass from 2011 to 2014 and it was great because at the time I'd been doing a lot of freelance writing and trying so hard to get any kind of editorial job at a magazine. And as you know, anyone who hears this in like 2021 knows it's impossible now. So impossible now. It felt impossible 10 years ago. So I just, I got into an MFA that, that offered me a teaching position and a, um, a salary to attend. So I was like, I'm not going to get this writing for a magazine. So let's see what happens writing some poetry. And I, I'm, it kind of changed my whole life. I wouldn't have started the Speedier Tease project if I hadn't moved up there. Certainly wouldn't have written the book. I've been going to school on and off since the 90s I started. And it really it really gave me a sense of, you know, moving forward. I, I need to always feel like I'm accomplishing something. And sometimes in music, I feel like I'm doing it because I do it and I'm going to do it no matter what. But I don't feel like necessarily it's moving. I don't know how to describe it. It's not like, it's not like I do it with a result in mind, but at the same time, it can get, it can wear you down to not move forward a little. And with school, it just really balanced that. It meant that I could, it's almost like that thing of taking your focus away from something and the thing that you take your focus away from flourishes and yet your world gets bigger from focusing on something else. And that's what happened with that environmental writing class I took last spring. It just, it was life-changing. It, it really made me realize how, you know, it's, it's really up to artists to kind of break this shit down into bite-sized pieces that people can start ingesting and absorbing that we, that we have a massive humanitarian and global crisis, like right now, now. And um, I started trying to just kind of put little conceptual things into my stories. But anyway, the MFA I applied for, I decided that I don't, number one, I'd have to drive on a freeway twice a week. And there was a lot of a like analysis and English lit. And I kind of thought it was just going to be, mm. you have to write. I'd kind of hit this like breaking point where Speedy kept getting tour offers that like I like could not turn down because yeah. it was with the heroes of my childhood. Like I think we had the breeders and then Stephen Malkmus in a row and, and they had been like two of my that still are two of my favorite artists. And I was like, uh, I, I need to be gone. And I we had Europe for like we basically went on tour for like six months and there's no way I could have been in school. So yeah. I'd managed to to talk my advisors into letting me 
do the last semester basically from a tour van. And I was like giving them all these proposals. My independent study will be to read all these different kinds of books from all the different countries I'm touring in. And my thesis advisors were like, just stop, enjoy the tour, take some things in. You'll use those in your writing later. That will be the independent study. This kind of brings me to something I'd wanted to ask you about, which I know you had gone to uh, Greenbrier, which is like a sort of Montessori style commune. Montessori would be like like a convent compared to Greenbrier. I mean, it, <laughs> it was it was insane. And it's funny you should bring it up because I was just I was just having lunch the other day with a guy that was also had gone to Greenbrier and his mother, who was my first piano teacher, and. Um, without getting ahead of your question, it's just weird that you should bring it up because I started thinking, that's my next book. That's my next book. Because I've been like, what's my next book going to be? And I thought, somebody needs to document this book. Somebody, I mean, this this school, it needs to be written. So what were you going to ask? I don't want to sidestep your question about it. Oh, I just love that, you know, being in that kind of environment is how you started playing guitar. Yeah. I got really lucky. I went to public school, but I did go to a cool summer camp that was like art studio. They would say Montessori style, but you could just show up at whatever kind of art studio you wanted for the day. And that was your, your day. That's pretty free. Got into guitar that way. So I feel like I'm thankful we both... (laughs) Oh, it's cool it that we changed, learned guitar. <laughs> it changed my life in so many ways. I'd always felt like such a pariah outcast. And when my daughter, who was also at the lunch, said, if I could be a fly on the wall anywhere, it would be at Greenbrier. She's like to her, it's just like she can't even imagine what that kind of schooling experience was. I think that's why I thought to ask this, because I was wondering if this year at home, you'd had to put your brain back to more self-directed school when you were when you were young. The really interesting thing about Greenbrier is compared to my experience in public school is the people that I've managed to kind of know what happened to them that were in public school that treated me horribly and were just horrible people, they've all ended up like in these terrible fates. They either committed suicide in jail or OD'd or you know, earn a living by like falling down in parking lots and suing places. Just weird, crazy, bizarre stuff. And all the Greenbrier kids, these are like, if you'd stopped in and just seen these kids running around naked, doing whatever they wanted. One is a professor, you know, at at um, the university in Edinburgh in Scotland. One is like, does research for the Smithsonian. And there's just so much success out of that school. And yet... There was a lot of darkness too. There was staff having sex with young girls. I mean, there was, it was, Jesus. I mean, it was the seventies granted, Yeah. but that's where I found what I, what I love. And it's just interesting to me that having that opportunity and that access, that's what drew you as well. And I wanted to ask you something because I'm probably older than your mom even, you know, and it's like, we have a very... I don't think so, but maybe thereabouts. We have this huge gap in where we started, when we started, but, but both pursuing music, me to a lesser degree, but academia and stuff. And yet I noticed one thing that I thought was interesting and a difference was that when I started playing guitar, almost right away, I was really focused on like making it, like 
being a success, mm. making it. And a lot of what drove that was I didn't see women. I didn't see women in the echelon of bands that I loved. I didn't see women playing music. And I just, I wanted that. And I wanted to be the one that helped do it. And I was just wondering, when you were pursuing music, was was it, did it really feel just about the art or did you have any desire for like, like when you started getting accolades for Speedy, when, you know, your albums came out and you're like, oh, this is the next big, big thing. Did that trigger in you? Like, oh my God, I want to make it. I want to go to the top. I think I've always been so it was ingrained in me because my parents had both had kind of these like music industry, you know, early junior A&R jobs, like way before I was born. And that was, you know, 1980, where, as you know, there was perhaps a lot more money in the music industry than there is today. And they'd kind of drilled into me, like, it's impossible to make it. You're not going to make it. You love doing this. Keep doing it go to school for math and engineering. So it was instilled in me forever, this will not be a day job. And it was really only when I was making more, when I was in my like second year teaching at UMass, you know, I'm in classes two days a week, I'm teaching, I would make it two days a week so that I could go on tour from like Thursday night till Monday night and get home at 5 a.m. and teach on Tuesday at 9 a.m. It was like, not a sustainable amount of energy to expend on basically two full-time jobs. And once the touring income was more than the UMass salary, my parents were like, not that I needed my my parents like, okay, but I'm such a mama's girl. I needed the okay to like yeah. quit my day job and actually do the day job that has been you know, I wouldn't say more exciting. Like I love teaching. I I love writing. I loved living in that world, but I would have been, I would have regretted it forever if I hadn't tried to at least do as much as I could with music while people were interested in, in what was happening uh, with Speedy and with my solo stuff. So I'm still kind of living in that zone. I think I I was also kind of, obviously, you know, when I'm learning guitar, it's 2001. It's a lot later. And there've been a lot more women who, you know, like yourself who are role models and going to this weird summer camp, there were all these girls with, you know, shaved heads playing in hardcore bands. So even though my public school was pretty conservative, I always saw that, you know, other women as my peers and playing in punk bands. So, um, it wasn't really until Speedy was headlining and going on long tours and the venue would always propose like all male bands to be the openers that I even really had like a a big awareness of the the decks being stacked. I just thought music business is impossible for everyone. One of the things I came to terms with when I wrote my book was my mom and my relationship with my mom has been, you know, highly unconventional and very difficult. And I went into this book with a lot of resentment at my mom, so much resentment, but writing the book, kind of made me realize that I had, like, she dropped the ball in so many ways. And I was so unparented and so unguided. And frankly, disastrous things could have happened. And in some people's minds did happen to me. You know, I'm alive and I'm not a crazy person. But one thing I realized was that she supported me. Like, I think my mom, in a weird way, is the one that made me think, why shouldn't I make it? My mom acted, lived her life like nothing applied to her. The rules didn't apply. She did not have to pay her bills on time. She did not have to pay the parking ticket. She did not have to parent her daughter. And 
I think that kind of weirdly infused to me, like, I don't have to go to school. I don't have to get a regular job. Maybe it's just like character or something, but the good part of that support kind of gave me a lot of confidence to think like, why shouldn't I? Now, then again, it's a very different music business now. I wouldn't fucking have a clue how to make it in the music business now. I mean, I know enough to know that I'm doing it all wrong. You know, if if I was starting, like, I know that Spotify is important and YouTube's and all the things I don't do very well are the important things. Well, I am certainly shooting myself in the foot because I just constantly critique the low payouts of streaming services and pull my music (laughs) from different places. So I I don't know that I know how to do it either. It's just interesting to me that you had, from the sounds of it, parents that were there in, in so many ways that I wasn't parented. And yet... You were, you were instilled with a different thing, which was totally logical. It's what I would tell my daughter, like, nice hobby, play your guitar, write your songs. <laughs> but, you know, that's exactly what a, a normal, responsible parent would tell their musician kid. I think as much as it would have been great to have been told, like, you will be a star, it wasn't that my, my parents didn't say you are talented enough to be a star, but I think yeah. they saw so many of their friends who were the utmost talented and, and you know, didn't get to do it as a full-time world record-breaking thing. And I look at my peers and and some of my most talented peers who everything they do is home recorded on Bandcamp and they never have a label deal and they, you know, book a couple DIY tours a year and they're the best songwriters I know. So I think knowing that so much of it is absolutely chance, it doesn't mean you don't work as hard as possible to make the thing that that will make you happy and make you feel, I mean, I couldn't make the stuff if I didn't, if I wasn't making it to like, you know, to the perfect thing that I need. So knowing that that's the the most important thing. And, you know, even if it's not the, the center of my professional life, it's still the like center of my heart. I love that. And it's like, because I've been doing what I do a really long time. I get that, that vantage point of looking back and some of my absolute best favorite experiences weren't at the height of a career that was all happening and stuff. They were, you know, traveling around Germany with two friends in a van playing to an empty place every single Mm -hmm. night, night after night for weeks and having the best time Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? 
jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. As a musician, when you look back at the things you've done with your band, whether it's recording or touring, what like stands out to you? If I think of, you know, the times I've felt the most like love for music at a show, it's, you know, seeing my friends play to like 10 people. So if I, if I try to summon up like moments I've been happiest as a music fan, it's something like that. And beyond that, I, I imagine you might say something similar, especially since I know you do a tremendous amount of self-production and you can play everything and write for everything. When I'm in that, kind of composing arranging zone or in the studio, just knowing exactly what sound I need to dial in and finally landing on it. Like those are the most, the, it's less the, like, as much as I love the, you know, making a music video or like photo shoots or stuff like that, that's, or, you know, meeting fans and stuff, obviously not quite to the degree you have, but the nerdy stuff is like where I'm, I feel like the most myself. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about recording because, um, I was excited when I discovered your solo stuff to see that it, it looks like, maybe I'm wrong, but that you do it in a different way. Like, it seems like with your with Speedy that you go in the studio and record as a band, but it seemed like you were kind of working more on your own. And do you have a studio at home? Do you do like Pro Tools or anything or Logic? I have a basement, <laughs> which for all intents and purposes is a studio. Uh yeah, I work in. I know you work in Pro Tools. I looked up your. I got your rig rundown. We both love cattle and bread. We both play old Fender Strats. Uh, I do. I use Logic, but I've got some Waves plugins. As as do you. Um, it, the line has gotten a little blurrier between the two projects because Speedy Ortiz had started as my like solo lo-fi home recorded thing where I was playing triple track drums and you know like violin that I can't actually play, but just to get something funny on tape. Uh, and then I, I recruited all my friends in the local scenes. So that's kind of how I pulled the speedy together. It was like the band I toured with two years ago, the band I have a, a show booked with in two months has a bassist. Maybe he'll play uh, <laughs> on these shows. So, so it sort of morphed into a band, but I really missed the home recording production elements. So I do less of it in speedy, but it's still starts on my computer and we'll go into a studio as a group. And whereas the Sad 13 most recent record, the first one I did all just kind of at home. And then I just tracked the most recent one, just going to all these different studios in between festival dates, wherever I could. And the day off was like, let me dial in synth sounds for a million hours. It seemed like um, the last Sad 13 had, like there was a lot of females involved in it too. It's all women on the engineering and and performance other than some of the orchestral stuff because I'm so well I, I something I did want to ask you we both have worked with Paul Coldery mm -hmm. that's in my notes too oh good 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 we got the notes <laughs> yeah I mean Paul was one of the first so that my partner in my band uh, before Speedy had gone to school for music tech and I had taken a couple classes when I was at engineering school. But um, it was kind of his thing, so I kind of backed off, and then it was like a whole relearning thing. So I feel like whenever I'm working with 
any kind of engineer, mix, production, mastering even, I'm like silently writing everything down so I can try to copy it. And I, this is such a long-winded way to, to ask you about it. When, when I was working on the last Speedy record in pre-production, I was actually dialing up, I was listening to a lot of Richard Goddard stuff. So I was listening to the Go-Go's, I was listening to Joan Armitrading. And I'm just curious, like what, as someone who's now producing, are there favorite tricks you picked up from being in the studio for all these years? I mean, I have sessions that like engineers have done that I have the session and sometimes I'll just pull it up and look at their settings. But a lot of times I just use the presets. I was in Linda Perry's studio one time and kind of asked her and she said she didn't know anything, that she just did it till she liked the way it sounded. And that was really like freeing to me. Like, really? That's okay to do it that way? Just like trust your fucking ears? I read her tape op interview recently. It's great. It's about pulling up. She'll pull up every mic. Every mic's a different character and it's whatever, whatever sound feels correct. Yeah. I love that philosophy. I felt like that kind of gave me permission to go like, okay, maybe I don't know about this many hertz or that, or this, this, you know, what to roll off, or I don't know that, but I know when I like the way something sounds. So I'm just trying to kind of learn to trust instincts more because they can work for you. And I'm pretty much all self-taught. I mean, everything is everything I want to answer to, whether it's, you know, editing video or doing something in Photoshop or recording on Pro Tools, there's an answer on the internet. So we live in a, a good time for that, whether it's in a forum or a, a YouTube. I'm very similarly self-taught on all my, you know, logic on Photoshop on now Final Cut. And I find myself pulling up like Gear Sluts forums from 2010 so often. I'm like, <laughs> I can't figure out how to do this one particular kind of edit in logic. And lo and behold, 30 guys talked through it 11 years ago. Yeah, exactly. There's there's pretty much a discussion about it somewhere, and uh, it's it's truly kind of the what makes the internet great, in, in my opinion. And my daughter, you know, she she learned guitar. She taught herself guitar about two years ago, and would not like didn't come to me for anything. I mean, she, everything was on YouTube, Harsh. you know. And I found like. I looked at, I, I would see on like old laptops and stuff, that photo booth app, the entire, like the, there would just be like hundreds of photo booth videos of her practicing singing, practicing playing. And it was all done just with her and a computer. Well, I, I was just talking to um, Greg Saunier from Deerhoof yesterday. And I had read an interview uh, with another member of that band. They've done now a couple records, kind of pandemic style, even even predating the pandemic. But he would take a, do drum takes in the photo booth um, and use that in the final recording as just like a and like a blown out effect. I love that. That my favorite thing about is people that are like kids in a toy store. And, and like mm. I remember, I built a studio I, when I first moved to Austin, and I was married, and my husband you know, earned a good living and we built like a studio and I invited my very favorite uh, Austin producer over to hang out. And his name is Frenchie and he has a studio called The Bubble and he's awesome to work with. And all he was consumed with was this plastic tube that I had running between the control room. And he's like, 
I bet it would sound awesome to put a mic in that plastic tube, you know. <laughs> and it just, it just like. Did I, you try? I did try it. Of course, I had to. So I, I, uh, <laughs> I just love uh, people that have that attitude. And working with um, now, when we worked with uh, Paul Caldery, it was him and Sean. And yeah, you would think I would have a lot of memories from that, but it was, it was a little bit of a difficult time. Like, you know, it was our first Go Go's album, and. God, almost 20 years. And I was really excited to be working with them. But one of my favorite memories is that, I think it was Paul, he went to a pawn shop and he bought an old high school PA system and he turned it into a guitar amp and he gave it to me. And it's just one of the sickest, coolest things. I actually met Paul, the aforementioned band prior to Speedy. Paul had heard our MySpace and was like, this is so in the box. Can you just like, you don't have to pay. Just come record with me because I can't stand how Pro Tools this sounds. And by the time the date came around, that band had broken up. I'd broken up with the boyfriend. So the drummer of Speedy and I just went in and used the time. And uh, we, you know, hung out with Paul in, in, God, I guess it was in Somerville, somewhere in Massachusetts. And that, that's how I met him. He just... He was, he was cool. He was very kind to us before anyone had a reason to be. And I'll never forget that. Do you guys work better with a producer when you record as a band? No, I'm so annoying. I have to, cause I, I'm a control freak. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've ever worked with like a true producer. Generally it's, it's someone engineering. What about when you disagree? Like what's like, what, what happens then? With my bandmates or with yeah, the... Yeah. Yeah. In the studio. Say you're like, we're going to get dark. You're... Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had that problem, and it's like the, I, I'm. Not, I've I've seen the documentary. <laughs> well, that doesn't even go into studio stuff. No, but your your book does. I feel like now because there's so little money and studio time is still as expensive. We just there's like no time to fight. We have to come in with such an exact plan and know what every single. I don't ever get to like experiment in the studio. So do you work it out in rehearsal? Pretty much. And I tend to pre-produce everything pretty specifically. So uh, it'll either be like, we're going to rewrite this part, but we figure it out in rehearsal. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so wonderful to get to go to a studio for, I feel like how how long, well, at this point you're doing very different things. You're working at home and you're not necessarily at home, but I know you're, you're playing mostly everything and doing drum programming and and things like that. How how long are you taking on projects? How long did your... I, I keep alluding to the soundtrack for your book, which I am so blown away by. I did one thing like that in the pandemic where I like scored one of my poems reading it. And I honestly feel like I made... It was funny listening to the song you sent. The production choices are kind of similar, uh, which made, made me very happy. But tell me about working on that. Well, that's why I wanted to send you something because a lot of you know, anything I do that's not the go-go's is, doesn't have much of an audience. So sometimes I have to kind of like point people in that direction. But when I finished the book, I, I just felt like, for one thing, I really missed writing uh, songs. I, I missed music because it was such a long, sustained focus on, on, on something else that wasn't music. And yet one of my sticking points with, um, with music is I'm like really picky about lyrics and I want a concept and I, I just really, so it makes it slow. I don't just churn stuff out, but all of a sudden I'm like, I have a whole fucking book to draw on. Like, yeah. And it was, I have to say 
when I had the idea, I thought it was genius. I thought, why did not every musician do this? You know, I, I just like, and I even looked up, I was like, surely so-and-so did a soundtrack to their book. And there were people that would release an album at the same time as the book, but nobody that I can find really looked at it as a soundtrack. And that was super freeing because it meant that it didn't have to be a song. It didn't have to be the length of a song. It didn't have to have the format of the song. It didn't have to have the structure, but it could. It could do whatever I wanted. And it was, I have to say, I love doing that probably more than anything I've ever done as a musician because I could do whatever I wanted. There's no committee. There's no lobbying. There's no like somebody else has to think it's a good idea to try it, you know? Those arrangements are so inventive and it's so, as a listener, it's just like wonderful to listen to all the details. So I had the best time. As you might guess, I don't love working with the committee either. (laughs) It's changed how I am as a writer. I'm now not afraid to just sit down with nothing. Before I would sit down with a guitar and a spiral and my, you know, in the old days, cassette player and the modern age, you know, voice memos. And I would need some kind of little nugget. And now I'm I'm not afraid to have nothing. So what it's also made me want to do desperately is for my next book to do, or maybe not my next one, but at some point I want to do a collection of short stories and with a soundtrack because the intersection and the having the inspirations cross is just so interesting to me and, and fun and exciting. I remember a lot of the music that I got into when I was like 10 years old and on was because I would just steal my dad's CDs. And I remember he had the like William S. Burroughs CD that had all these like pretty wild musical backdrops to it. And I think when I was like last year, when I was going back to, I did this like benefit compilation where they had me score one of my own poems and kind of like the stuff from your soundtrack. I was like, I'm going to go wild. I'm going to do some interesting vocal effects. It's not going to be just me reading and like the, you know, quiet, like PSA soundtrack underneath. I really like made the mixing and arrangement part of the poem and it was so fun for me. And I kind of remembered listening to stuff like that when I was younger. And yeah, I don't know why there's not it's a lot of work is why I'm sure, you know, from do you didn't deal your whole book, but what it's like 10 or 11 uh, chapters. Yeah. Well, my book has got short chapters. There's 30, I think 35. So there was no way I could do the whole thing. So, and when I, when I wrote the book, I would just like grab one line out of the chapter or one phrase or two words, just so I could remember what I'd written. And I just got used to seeing that there. And that became the names of the chapters and so when I started the soundtrack, I just would look, I would just kind of scan through and go, oh, Liquid Forget, that's the song. Not only does it sound like a song, I like what it's talking about. The really cool thing for me about the soundtrack was something that happened on an emotional level. And it was with, I think it's the third track and it's called Just Do It. Mm-hmm. And it deals with a chapter where I yeah, was- Yeah, that's an intense chapter. Yeah, and- I thought like writing about it, it was one thing. It was one thing to write about it, but it was almost very disconnected. And when I pulled out a guitar to write the the song for that, I went right to the, the name of the chapter and I started playing and I sang, you know, do it, just do it. And then I sang, if I can't stop you, I can let you. And I fucking, I just like broke down. I started crying. And I just started like, like he, that kind of heaving, crying. And yeah. it, 
every time I would pick it up and try to start the song again, it would. Er so it was really, it was so fascinating that it took the music and the lyric connection to like really open the box. It was almost like writing the chapter, took the box out and put it out of the closet and put it out on the table. And then the song was like opening it up. And it was, it went on for three days, basically. I mean, I had to tell my daughter why, because she was like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Because yeah. I was crying. And it was, it was just so interesting, like at, at 61 years old, to be grieving so intensely and so thoroughly and so effectively something that had happened when I was 14 that I thought was no big deal. Done, over, it was crazy. So that's the power of music. Yeah, I mean, I know that certainly for me, writing through some difficult topics like that, something about interpreting them through like a melody just changes the way my brain and emotions are processing. I don't often cry, but I have absolutely been moved to tears just like making instrumental music when I know what it's coming from. It is like a key and also... It has become such a tool for my my emotional sanity. You know, I my divorce. I I wrote my way through my divorce. I mean, I had a seven year old daughter, and all I knew was that she can't know. She cannot know how it doesn't like. I I just knew that however devastated I was, how heartbroken I was, that it didn't matter. What mattered was her well being, and. I would go in the closet when she went to bed and break down and I would turn to my writing and I I wrote songs that that got me through it and they'll they'll never be heard and they're full on productions and I can't play yeah. them for anybody. I think it's amazing that you were able to to find that as and you know go in your closet and and be able to to work and create through something so difficult even just for yourself. I did write a song about breaking down in the closet. I did write. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that in terms of therapy, you're writing. I mean, I, I really liked, because lyrics are important to me, and so often they're a letdown. And I liked as I was really diving into your music, enjoyed reading your lyrics and um, your phrasing, I mean, I, I do everything as a student, so I'm like learning, you know, my next song will probably sound like Speedy Ortiz. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I already did my Go-Go's album, <laughs> so now I need to do my Kathy Valentine book soundtrack. Yeah, it's, it's like funny how you just kind of, I mean, just even in reading, you know, just reading things. Um, I traded memoirs with Flea. Red Hot Chili Peppers Flea. Yeah, I haven't read his book, but I heard it's good. Yeah, and it's very different than my book. And yet, because I haven't started my second book yet, I'm constantly like looking for that soaking up inspiration. And there's things that he does that I really, really like. And it's very short vignettes, and which I tried to do with my book, but his are really short. Like some, some of them are like two pages. I like the idea of the vignette, you know, at, at my attention span and focus isn't what it used to be. I think that's you and the entire internet connected world. Yeah, I've had to like train myself just to read books again, because if my interest isn't held for one second, I'm like, oh, on to the next. <laughs> Since we're going to wrap up, I wanted to say I noticed I watched your thing when you did the the Basement Queens with Lizzo for Google Docs. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Yeah. So like, did you go into that like already with a song idea or did you just pop off the top of your head with that whole Basement Queens thing? That was the first song I did as Sad 13. And it came about because Speedy Ortiz was working on a remix EP. We had Open Mike Eagle doing one. And I had been a fan of Lizzo and I think mutual fans. And she was not like, I think at that point, Speedy Ortiz was like bigger than Lizzo, which is very funny to say now. (laughs) But she was like, you sound like Mars Volta. She's like, you know, was in punk bands and stuff. So she was working on a remix for Speedy with Laserbeak from Doomtree, who we'd toured with. And then this thing came in through Google where they wanted, this is 2015, they wanted two artists to do this really novel thing of writing together over video chat and using Google Docs. Of course, 2020, 2021, that's all anyone does. But at that time, mm-hmm. they were like, this is going to be a great commercial for like what you can do with Google Office Suite or whatever it is. So she basically told me, even though, you know, she obviously everyone knows she can play the flute, she can play everything. She's like, I'm really just into freestyling right now. So can you just send me a track and we'll see what happens with it. So I was like, I've never really written for someone other than me. Let me think about, she was, her music was a little weirder back then too. Like I I was obsessed with the song Batches and Cookies. So I kind of made this like, my friend told me it sounded like Hey Arnold. I just made this kind of weird instrumental that was like a little bit proggy, but pop. Mm -hmm. And thankfully she liked it. And that was kind of, that was kind of how it went. So Yeah, I just made it in my, literally sitting in bed on my computer and was like, do you like this? Expecting to change a lot. And she liked it. But the fun anecdote, it's probably still the same way. I haven't tried to do any co-writes over Zoom, honestly. But um, there was just enough of a lag that um, I was hearing her like an eighth note lag when she was like, you know, going along with my guitar playing. So we got to the studio. She was going on the, right on the one. I was like, what are you doing? Like it, you were, you were doing it on the offbeat. So we wound up just moving it over to see if it sounded better. And, and it did. And that's, that's my story with Lizzo. Now she's the number one artist in the world. We have bandied her name about to ask if she would be, you know, induct us into the hall of fame. Do you think your dad would be cool with the Go-Go's getting inducted? So my dad has passed away a few years ago, but he, I have so many unverifiable stories from him of like his early music industry days. So he, he was friends with Seymour Stein, which is how I I wound up with a really weird assistant job when I was 19, trying to teach Seymour Stein to use the computer. And he would like lift, he would lift the mouse in the air and try to move it around like that. Um, and eventually I got moved to like just office assistant duties, like ordering paper and stuff. That's my favorite thing I've ever heard. So my dad had all these stories and he had, he had been trying to start some company where they'd basically do pay-per-view Broadway productions on TV with Seymour. And my dad's claim that was unverifiable anywhere and from anyone, but I choose to believe it, is that he came up with the concept for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame awards show. So he would go for a long time. And then, you know, (laughs) I don't know the full story. I feel like there was some drama where he wanted to be more formally recognized for his part in, uh, I think he'd be very psyched, yes, that the Go-Go's are, I think he'd be pissed that it took 15 years, 15 or 16 years too long. But yes, I think he's very happy wherever he is. Well, it's the committee, you know, the committee changes, the old guard changes, but yeah, I'm excited. I am also excited. It's yeah. Congratulations. Overdue. 
I really have enjoyed talking to you. I've really enjoyed hearing your music. I'm happy too. I'm a big <laughs> fan of you. So appreciate it. Was it was really fun to listen. And uh, I can't think of anything else in my notes. It was just easy though, talking. I feel like I could do this, so, you know, forever. Well, um, I hope this is the start of staying in touch. Yeah, please. Now we're on email. Yeah. We can, we can um, tell Josh what we're up to. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Kathy Valentine and Sadie Dupuy for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on all your favorite podcast providers and social media channels. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme was composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.